here this morning. It is April 14th, 2023. This is Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. I am Lisa Salberg, and I am joined today with uh, Dr. Martin Marin, or Marty Marin. And today we're going to talk about family histories and genetics and HCM. Good morning, Marty. Good morning, Lisa, and good morning, everybody tuning in. Always good to be here. Thank you. It's it's been a crazy week here at the HCMA. I did a little traveling this week. I went out to the University of Toledo to pick up four plastinized human hearts that were donated to the HCMA, three by transplant recipients and one from a family who lost their child to sudden cardiac arrest. And these organs are going to help us teach people that HCM is complex, the anatomies are diverse. And the complications of the disease are are truly important to understand and to try to mitigate. Right. So are these going to be on display for people? So I'm actually going to kind of open up some days here in the office for maybe educational viewings from students and um, uh, fellows, et cetera. And we may lend some of them out in a library. There's going to be a whole web page dedicated to each of the hearts as we build this out. We've got some video content of them being sectioned. We've got a little bit of the story from the back end of the family and the person. And um, they'll come out to conferences with us as the William Clifford Roberts Anatomic Heart Collection. And um, we really thank Dr. Roberts for all the work he did in sectioning them. And our our thanks to Carlos Baptista and Bill Frank of uh, the University of Toledo for the plastinization. Bill is moving on to Drexel University, where we hope to maintain our relationship and continue the plastinization process with a few new hearts coming soon. So you'll see photos later. I want to have each of the owners gets a private opportunity to do a little bit of a viewing of the heart before we make them public, public as they're plastinized. So I'm doing one of those this afternoon, and I hopefully will be meeting with another family in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll put them all public. So that was my weird week. How was yours? Um, not as weird as that. I think <laughs> usual week, um, you know, taking care of a lot of patients and doing the best we can. Um, nothing else out of the ordinary. Well, that's good. So maybe you can make one sentence in case people, we've talked about him, but since you mentioned him, Bill Roberts. Bill Roberts in one sentence, impossible. I've known Bill Roberts since your dad introduced me to him probably around 1996. And Bill is a cardiac pathologist who started his career at the National Institute of Health in cardiology and kind of, I I don't think there was ever, I've asked him about that. So there was no specialty training program for cardiac pathology. He kind of invented it. it. He's the professor's professor, if that makes sense. And he, he's had two employers in his life, the NIH and Baylor. And he's 90 years old now. Um, he's still working and he's just an amazing individual. We've sent many hearts to him. A lot of, um, I'd say like the late nineties, early two thousands when there was a sudden death and they couldn't come up with cause mm-hmm. and they didn't, the local pathologists and medical examiners were lost. We would have hearts sent to bill and he would section them and provide reports, never charged anybody a dime, mm-hmm. never, never took, no for an answer, like, you know, Bill, can you help us? Yes, send them. Happy to help. And one of the most just genuinely caring human beings I've ever had the opportunity to get to know and call my friend. Legend, really. I think just to summarize, I mean, 
kind of a, a legendary figure in cardiology, contributing throughout his incredible career over many, many decades, so much understanding of cardiology through pathology, including, as you said, HCM. I mean, we, we learned through his work alone, just so much about the HCM heart. And we will forever have an indebted gratitude, I think, to him for that. There's no question. Absolutely. Um, when I get a couple of these other hearts back and I tell some of the stories of some of the quite unique steps that we've had to go to figure out, you know, what actually happened here? Like, how how do you a get the heart to him and how does he assess the heart and what does the report say and how does that come back to the family and what are the implications to that family after a sudden death? And then there's the other side of what he does and he sits with transplant patients and he will tell them about their heart. And he will, I'm the only one he's sectioned the heart in front of to this date and will be the only one ever. Others, he sections them and then he brings the patients in and says, okay, here's your heart. Let me tell you about it. And I would love to see that become a standard practice for transplant patients to have that cathartic moment with the thing that kept them alive and almost killed them. It's a very unique relationship we have with our anatomic heart. That's unbelievable. So we huge debt of gratitude to him. It's great you're naming um, this after him. Absolutely. It, it just makes sense. And we really appreciate him. Yep. So topic of the month, genetics. 2004-05, just as you were starting up in Boston, right? Like the early days, we had the first clinical genetic tests available. They were three to $10,000 a panel, and they didn't give us a lot of information, but it was a starting point. Where are we today compared to where we started almost 20 years ago? I think it's a great question. And, you know, I think let's start by saying that genetics, you know, is kind of a scary topic. It's a complicated topic, I think, for a lot of patients because it's uh, something they're not as familiar with. It's harder to explain as well, in some ways, you know, kind of what that is really all about, you know, particularly as it relates to them and their families. So it's it's good that we're covering this because I think it, it, it I think I'd like to try to take the, the time today to make it simple, as simple as we can. Perfect. Um, I think that's always our goal to, to try to make these concepts in HCM clear, simple, and and therefore topics that patients can 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 really relate to and become empowered by understanding. That's our goal, right? So let's tackle then, you know, the topic of, of genetics. And, you know, I think let, let's start with the fact that, you know, I think, as you said, we're about 30 years into the gen, post-genetic era, meaning that we've been able to kind of have tools to apply to blood to identify um, the mutations, the change in the genetic code that have been associated with ultimately being responsible for disease. These are changes, mutation means just a change in the genetic material, the genetic code, what we call the DNA that we have, that that change can result in downstream consequences, in this case, potentially causing uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to develop. So, that understanding, by the way, that HCM is a genetic heart disease, you know, only came to us about 30 years ago. 
it's interesting to talk to a lot of the cardiologists that were in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy before we knew it was due to a mutation or a genetic cause. And at that point, there were a lot of theories to what was causing HCM. You know, was it caused by an environmental exposure? Was there some other reason? Yeah. And, you know, that wasn't that long ago. So we're, we're, we're really kind of new in a way, just relatively speaking, in our understanding that this is actually genetic disease. We take it for granted today, but that's not the case. So what we've learned, to get to your question, what we've learned is that we now have the ability to test patients through blood or saliva for the presence of a mutation that could be responsible for their disease. Okay. And that information then, the ability to do that and to get that information back in a report, the question that patients want to know is, okay, but why do I need to know that? What, how does it impact me or my family to know that information? That's really where we get into the application of genetic testing to the clinical arena, okay? And I think if we were to, and, and then I'll, I'll pause in a minute here, by, 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 and by kind of trying to just summarize the answer to that question, there's sort of a number of different reasons and, and, and what we've learned about genetic testing over the years is that one, genetic testing can one, help with determining diagnosis in certain situations. Mm-hmm. What I mean specifically is differentiating patients that have other types of heart diseases that could like could look like HCM, but are not. Things like Dannon's cardiomyopathy, Fabry disease, other diseases like that, that have, mm-hmm. because of their expression, the disease results in the heart being thick like HCM, but they have different natural histories and different treatments. And sometimes we don't know the answer to that based on a diagnosis, based on the imaging. So genetic testing can help with diagnosis, and then the second big bucket they can help with is it can help us to determine whether or not other family members could be at risk or not of developing HCM in the future. So it helps with family assessment of developing or risk of developing HCM. What it doesn't do is that that information we don't use to impact change decisions by the patient that's affected by HCM on management. So in other words, we don't, for example, say you need an ICD because you have this specific type of mutation, or we don't say you're going to need a heart transplant because you have this type of mutation. That we don't do because that information ultimately just never really panned out as it relates to the mutation. So let me stop there. I covered a lot of ground there and let me pause. That That's that's a lot. Yep. Um, I'm going to go backwards and I'm going to say, unpack it. Yeah. We're going to unpack it now. Yeah. Um, we, you know, I have my little phrases. Okay. Let's unpack that. Let's unpack that. That's why I said that. I knew that. I, I, I travel a lot. I unpack a lot. Let's, let's unpack it. Live on an airplane. Okay. So in 2005, we were afraid a lot of times to have genetic testing in families because there was no protection in the United States against the information being used or potential use for health insurance, uh, premium uh, allocation or employment or education, et cetera. So in 2008, thanks to the leadership of the Genetic Alliance, which we are part of, we passed the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, signed into law 2008, provides protection against genetic discrimination 
by use of uh, the information for health insurance, access, education, or employment. So we took away some of the fear. They can still rate you on life insurance and long-term disability, but it can also look at your family history and take that under consideration as well. So we got rid of that barrier and the price started to come down and down and down and down and down. And now most patients could get genetic testing for somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 out of pocket. Uh, It could be a little bit more, it could be a little bit less, but it's really quite affordable. And there's a lot of assistance programs as well that can help people get to that testing. So we've made it more accessible and we're not looking for three major genes now. They're looking for more, but it's still the heavy hitter three or four that really are where most of the identified HCM live today. Correct? Right. That's right. Okay. So that's where we are. And we know we can use genetic testing to potentially screen our family members. We can't tell what their progression of disease is going to be or when they'll manifest disease or if they'll manifest disease. We don't know enough yet. We don't quite understand what turns this off and on and why some people get early hypertrophy and some people get later. We're still learning, but we know where these markers are. So we're also in a day where there have been 4,000 human beings in the United States over the past about eight years, 10 years, who have been dosed with a genetic therapy. And there is talk that we want to take our knowledge of HCM genetics, and there are companies that have been developed that want to provide genetic services and maybe genetic corrections. These are really big issues. They're really complicated issues. And I, I just want to kind of gut check with you on the, boy, are, are we all talking in a shared vocabulary now, or do we all need to start talking a little bit differently about what the impact of some of these potentials are and where we might be going? Yeah, let me, let me back up. Can we get back up for sure. one second? Because I want to just make sure we round out a, a few of the edges that you were just talking about before in terms of where we are today. Perfect. For those that may be you know, uninitiated and in, in thinking about genetic testing or may have that conversation coming up in terms of their evaluation, just to be clear on a couple things, genetic testing today means that you give blood or a buccal swab that gets sent off and tested for the current panel of known mutations for HCM. That's usually to one of three or four different commercial genetic testing companies offering that service today in the U.S. I don't really how it's done for low cost, as you said. Mm-hmm. In fact, actually, most I think the average is actually around hundred dollars out of pocket if your insurance doesn't cover it, which most do at this point. Yeah. Correct. The cost is there. The that barrier is, as you said, is become much, much, much less. Just a couple of points. When the return of the testing comes back, which usually takes a couple of weeks to get the results back, the the yield, the the, mm. the let's just talk a second about yield, because people have the perception that that everybody has a mutation. Yes, equals result. Right? Yeah. Of course, that's not true. Um, in patients that have a clinical diagnosis of HCM, it's only about 30 to maybe upwards of 50% of patients will have 
a mutation identified with genetic testing. That means half of patients with HCM who get genetic testing, the result comes back inconclusive or, or negative, essentially. No mutation identified, yeah. Exactly. And so if you're going to enter into genetic testing, you just have to be aware that, you know, it, it isn't 100%. It's far from that. And that the actions, meaning assessing other family members for risk, only can be done if a mutation is found in the patient. Okay, So that is only clinically, what we call clinically actionable, meaning to test other family members to see if they have that mutation, therefore at risk or not of HCM, can only be done if the person with HCM has a known mutation. Okay, And second, just to follow, uh, fill in a few of the other, so you're correct, the, the GINA Act signed by Bush Jr. before he left office protects patients from being discriminated against for genetic predisposition in terms of health insurance. But as you well know, of course, and it's important to say, disability and life insurers, that is not the case. So they can right. have access to that information and make decisions about it vis-a-vis -vis patients. Okay, so that's yeah. another thing to be cognizant of when deciding Obviously, it's a complicated decision then for a patient to do genetic testing. There's a lot of variables to consider. That's why it's really important to have this conversation with your, your HCM cardiologist expert. And in, in cases where available, genetic counselor can help bring these to light as well. So we really think they have a, a great value to the community and just understanding the the landscape that you're about to head into. And we've provided a lot of content through the Big Hearted Warrior Tours. We've yeah. got a lot of genetic counselors out there who you can get the content online. If you can't meet with one individually, at least do your due diligence online to understand that. Um, so we know there's a couple of places we've been able to do some amazing things with genetics. We have a number of clients of the HCMA who have used genetic information to do pre-implantation genetic diagnostics, which means they're able to select embryo for implantation that doesn't carry the HCM gene so they can stop the HCM cycle in their family through PGD. And this has been around for about 20 years. It's not something commonly used, but it is a pathway to eradicate the gene within a family. But it's very intense. You've got to do IVF. You've got to do all of those steps. And it's got about a 90% success rate, not 100%, because they're only going off of a couple of cells. So we can use genetic information for that piece. And it's really uber cool. And it's not right for everybody. And it's right for some. But how, where are, it's almost like suspending HCM for just a minute. Like, where are we going as a society? You know, why did we tackle the human genome? Why did we want to get in there and figure it out? Because we're curious or because we want to alter bad things from happening in the future and try to stop disease and improve life. But how? That's how. It's a big question. And um, I think just, just to... To, to be clear to the to, to listeners, I think, you know, you, I think you said this just a minute ago, but, you know, we're, one of the reasons we're talking about this right now is that we are starting to begin an initiative. We, I just mean the scientific community is beginning to consider we've gotten to a place scientifically where there is some rationale that we may be able to alter 
the genetic material in a patient to have a beneficial, potentially a beneficial effect of improving the HCM heart in some way. This is another form of therapy, just like pills, just like surgery. This is a different type, obviously, but it's a therapeutic intervention. Can we use what we have today to alter the genetic material, to correct it in a way that will be safe and provide benefit for the patient? That's what is now beginning. That, That type of therapy is being explored just beginning to be explored in HCM. And as you can imagine, that's a very complicated, the, the science is very complicated and the, the initiative, therefore, the, the, the studies and the way that this research is being conducted, you know, is a little bit more complicated to wrap your arms around in a way than maybe uh, other kinds of therapies, pills or surgery that we have available today. And so it, it it starts to begin because it has to do with altering our genetic material. It starts to, as a, as, as a basis, raise a lot of questions, right? About, you know, whether this is a comfortable thing, whether this is the right thing, whether this is the thing we should be pursuing and supporting. Those are obviously, I think, natural questions this early on in a kind of a scientific effort in, in, in this. And I don't know if there's a right answer to your question, other than the answer may be very different for different people at this stage. And knowledge is power. So I think understanding better for anybody who is considering entering into this kind of therapy at this stage, understanding fully what it's about is going to be obviously the most important thing initially. And finding out if it's been successful is going to be a bit more complicated than, oh, let's take something that we all know and well now in HCM, that's a REMS program where we're waiting month after month to see echo data to see if somebody's doing better with their obstruction or not. We don't really know how long it's going to take to see actual changes in the heart that will prove to be sustainable and um, and really corrective. So it's gonna take some time as we were learning this. And, you know, I, I'm a little challenged right now with the topic and I, I, I take challenges very seriously because we, we always wanna, we always wanna do our best, but this is, this is new space. Yeah. And I spent yesterday listening to a bunch of patients through um, a, a seminar that I participated with, with uh, CBER at the FDA, and I'm listening to patients who had genetic therapies and like they're, it, it was very, like they didn't really know that it was happening when it happened because they got an IV and somebody put something in their IV and they didn't know it happened until like 10, 15 minutes later. And they're like, oh, my therapy's done. And then over the next couple of weeks, things happen and they're talking about how they're doing better today from their diseases. This was hemophilia and, um, and sickle cell disease where most of the patients talking about, but those diseases are very different than hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The implications are different. The long-term prognosis is different. The, the uncertainty aspects are a little different as well. So we are in a really unique place 
And I think we all need to start having some deep conversations, patients, clinicians, researchers about what success might look like in this space and how to get there safely. At my core, and I don't talk about this very much, um, why do I do what I do? It all starts with an issue of patient safety. My sister was harmed in a clinical trial. My spidey sense shoots up to a thousand when we're talking about risks of patients and informed consent and do they understand what they're consenting to and what are the long-term potentials here? And it's really important that we all are understanding each other's perspectives and we're really managing expectations and understanding science at the highest level. It's just, a, it's a crazy time. And I think safety is like the, the word that keeps flashing in my face, like be safe, be safe, be safe. What do you think? Yeah, of course, safety is always and should always be at the top one, two, three of considerations for any kind of clinical trial, but particularly one where, you know, the the the, the science and the complexity are all, you know, you know, different and new, you know, and, and we may not have as much information, you know, about safety as, as one would like for things like this kind of initiative. And so- right. Um, that's another challenge is, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile that? You know, I mean, there's only going to be a certain amount of information available about safety and efficacy for something like this. This is a different than just to contrast that to drugs, you know, you know, phase three clinical trials for drugs have had phase one and phase two behind them to some degree. And in some, in some cases, even more than that. And so we have a lot more information oftentimes about safety for drugs, if someone's entering a clinical trial as a phase, in a phase three at the, at the, at the end of the, that effort. And so here it, it's, it's, you know, because it's a different disease and it's, it's, it's not the same as genetic therapies, maybe for other initiatives, you know, we, we have is let, we have less information. And so reconciling that and kind of having to, to sort of, you know, come to some rec reconciliation of sort of how to deal with that before deciding is a big challenge. I wish HCM sometimes was less complex, but I think I'd be bored if it were, because what would my brain do all day then twist around these completely convoluted concepts um, and try to get people to understand paths and educate and take away some of the fear and the confusion around some of these treatment pathways. But we're, we're, we're a unique bird. Yeah, <laughs> There's so, a lot so, going on here. So let's get really practical then for just a second. So just on that issue. So, sure. you know, let's say you're a patient and you're hearing about gene therapy, and maybe you're becoming interested in that idea, but safety, of course, is on the top of your mind. What do you do? How do you go about clarifying that to, 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 to come as comfortable as you could potentially be about that issue? Maybe your HCM cardiologist or, your, or the gender counselor at your center doesn't know yet about the, the, these, these, these studies, this type of science either. Um, not everybody, even expert HCM cardiologists have a good understanding of this science, right? right? So what do you do then as a patient? How do you, how do you get the information that you really need to make the best informed decision when we're talking about a clinical trial like this? And this is where, we internally here at HCMA, board committees, staff, with our partners, with our reach. I mean, I have reached out to some of the most um, 
well-respected bioethicists in the world to ask them to have a conversation with me about what this structure should look like. And I'm, I'm literally reaching to the highest ranks that I can get to, including the new office of genetics at the FDA to say, let's, let's all get in lockstep here early and figure this out. Not only are we looking at genetic therapies. So, and we've got like two or three minutes. We've got a hard stop at noon here, but I'm going to leave this kind of on a tantalizing note. We have pathways to care that are complex, but when you look at the other genetic therapies, there's a couple of others that have targeted the heart, but why has the FDA always been a little funny on heart trials? Because it's your freaking heart people. It's your heart. And if it trial doesn't go well on a heart drug, the rest of your body doesn't seem to kind of work without the heart. So they're really sensitive about safety for cardiac meds, which is why we went to them with the PFTD and explained the burden of disease and that we wanted the right to try myosin inhibitors. And we marched forward with them and we got a REMS program. Pain in the ass, yes. Patient safety, yes. We put them together. Now we're going into another space where we're talking about genetic therapies on your heart. If it goes wrong, it'd be really bad. If it goes good, it could be really good. So we have to be really careful here and how we help educate people to ask questions. We're still formulating that. And we want to hear from patients. What are you thinking? What do you, what do you think you want? We all want a cure. Face it. We all want that. But who, when, where, how much is it worth? Who's paying? Like there's so many questions to be asked. And also defining what we mean by cure. You know, yeah. What do we mean by that? I mean, you could make the argument that if you have a myectomy and you go to class one and asymptomatic and you feel great and you go the rest of your life feeling great with no other complications, that's a cure. A cure? It, it, it could, one could define it in such a way, yes. So I think, but that's an important point. Like, how do we define cure? Given that that's a term now being raised because of the genetic aspects of these therapies, you know, how do we define that? I mean, maybe we define it differently in HCM, you know, maybe, maybe an ICD is a cure, maybe because it protects you against one out of the blue lethal event that would be corrected with an ICD and patients may have no other complication related to the disease. Does the ICD then become a cure? I just mean, we need to think Mm. about how to define that because that's a term that may have different ways of looking at it. So I think these bring up some excellent points on shared vocabulary and it's a simple concept, shared vocabulary. But if I say this is what risk means to me and somebody else says, no, I define it differently. If we start from the same place. So I think we need to build a dictionary of how do you define cure for yourself? How do we define it for the community? What does success look like to a clinician? What does success look like to a patient? And they are a little different. If you have deployed every tool you have available to help me live a better life, Marty, as a doctor, thank you for deploying every tool you have. But I still may think I'm only at 80%, not 100. And we have to like have shared communication as to where we all agree is the best we can get. And the conversation will continue to evolve. It is high noon on a Friday and it's going to be 90 degrees here in the state of New Jersey. So um, turn on your AC, but get ready with the heater tomorrow because it's going down into the fifties. And um, 
Lots going on here at the HCMA. Stay tuned for us next week when Marty and um, Dan Jacoby, formerly of Yale, now with Cytokinetics, will be joining me for a one-hour webinar on all of the uh, clinical trials uh, Cytokinetics is bringing to the table now, and you'll learn about all those trials, and you'll be able to ask questions about those clinical trials. That's coming up on the 18th. I think we're doing that. Yeah, next Tuesday. Um, so come back and join us for that. You can sign up now. I think we have a couple hundred people signed up already. So it looks like it's going to be a great webinar. Uh, looking forward to having that discussion. I want to say thanks to the sponsors of Tales from the Heart, which includes Cytokinetics, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Tanaya Therapeutics, and Embryo Therapeutics, or I'm sorry, Pharmaceutical, for their support of this and other programming of the HCMA. Marty, thank you as always for joining us. Go have a lovely spring day. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for everybody for tuning in. Always good to join you and enjoy the uh, the rest of the good weather. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.